Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Take your Bibles this morning, your copy, whatever format it may be, as long as the Word of God, to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, I don't have the Pew Bible address number, but uh, it will be about six books from the front. Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, that would be 6, 7. It's right there, uh, the eighth book. 717, thank you very much. Allow me to read the first uh, five verses, though. We're really not going to look per se at this particular passage. We're going to kind of peruse the chapter, the book as a whole. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges rule that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judea, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, the name of his two sons was Malon and Chilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judea. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Father, we ask, Lord, this morning, we've sung hymns and choruses and songs about others. What a challenge that that can be in the day and the hour in which we do live here in this nation. May we reflect upon the lives, dear Lord, of these that are written here for our example and be willing to adopt and put into practice our life, the priority in which they express and they lived out. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I have to go back, maybe I'm probably 13 where I began to, to learn how to swim. In other words, I went to learn how to swim the real way, not in some creek. I can tell a creek swimmer versus those who have learned to swim. And, uh, but by the time I was 6, 15... I got up to the point where we are ready to learn how to, to do life-saving. And I don't know what they're doing today in terms of getting your life-savers um, certificate, but we had a number of disciplines and practices that we had to do. Had to be able to swim a mile. Had to be able to jump into a water and not submerge. Jump into a pool and our head would not submerge. We had to be able to approach somebody in distress, get behind them so that they would not get us in a death grip, and carry that individual, swim that individual for another one lap of the pool. But there was one area that I know they probably are not doing today, and that's learning how to dive. We had to learn how to dive, and this is one of the dives that I can recall that we had to do, even though I don't exactly remember what it was called. In terms, of, <clears throat> So diving was one of the big important things that we had to learn. And a good dive, not only did it have the form in terms of flight off that springboard, but it had to make really a small flash, 
splash into the water. A good diet had a tiny splash, a small splash. As we come to the book of Ruth, we're looking at the nation of Israel and as a whole. As we look at verse number one, it was during the days of the judges, and we're dealing at, in Ruth with a small family. I would call in their life a small flash, splash. If we would look at and just go back to, to Judges and just get a little bit of appreciation of the, of the difficulties and the challenges at the national level. We might say that we got a generation where one generation was not able to influence the next generation and so therefore it rises up a generation that did not know God. Uh, we would read that there would be a cycle that followed the life of the nation of Israel. Fall into sin, God's chastisement, repentance, God's deliverance, uh, rest, and then the cycle begins again. By the time you get chapter 6, it begins to really look down at what's really going on inside the nation. Yeah, there was this interest to say that, you know what, our problem is we, we really need a king. And even beginning with, with Gideon, as Gideon did his role as a, uh, to deliver the, uh, uh, the nation from, from the oppression from Philistines and others, there would be problems. Well, the Ephronites, he didn't tell the Ephronites. The Ephronites said, well, hey, why didn't you come here and let us know that we could have joined in? Well, God told him, hey, look, we're only going to be 300 guys and we're going to take care of business here. Then there rose up Elimelech, his son. And his son, well, I want to be king. And so therefore he killed his sons and therefore made himself king until he was dethroned. Then there was Jephthah. Jephthah was uh, born out of a harlot. They didn't want, he was a great leader, but they didn't want Jephthah because of the fact that he was born out of a harlot. But then they start losing and say, hey, we better get called Jephthah because we need his leadership skills. And then it goes on and on. There's a private religion. There's Micah. He has a, a, a concubine, a Levite concubine. They kill her. They abuse her. And it's just on and on with massive national issues. Massive national problems. But with that massive national problem, there's a problem down at the family level. That perhaps different than us. As we look at the national level, or even look at it in terms of ministry in our own church, and the, and the magnitude and the scope and what the Lord has allowed us to do. When we say amen, we still come down as we go home at the individual level, at the small, tiny, splash level. I believe that the writer, which I think is Samuel, I think most would believe that Samuel, that the lesson for the readers, others as, as us as readers, to appreciate, and I quote as well as I modified the quote, that the book of Ruth affirms this. You know that sometimes God affirms his purposes in the world through just ordinary motivation and the events of his people. The tiny splash of those who live stirs little, perhaps, beyond the pool of the community. But yet their acts of graciousness and loving kindness goes well beyond the call of duty. If we were to read the last chapter of the book, we would find that the actions of, of, of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz resulted in the birth of Obed, then Jesse, and then David. Boaz being the great-granddad of Boaz. They would not really know what would have taken place as a result of the things that they have done. 
But these small splashes in life is what God ultimately uses. And I, and I would like to, us to think that way. To think that, well, sometimes when it comes to serving the Lord and doing things for God, we think we've got to make a, a big splash. Only this big splash is God. does God use. No. God uses small, tiny splashes. Tiny splashes. So if we look at a little, little bit of the contextual keys, at least in terms of the book, we will find that the problem is stated for us. Naomi really is the central character. Ruth is perhaps the supporting actress, but she wins the Academy Award. We know that. But Ruth is the, is the central character. And what we really want to find, we find in this, that there's death and emptiness. We would come in verse number 5. It says that the woman survived her two sons and, and, uh, and her husband. And boy, as we read the drama, we would want to know, wow, what's going to happen to Naomi? What happens? And of course, Ruth, again, as I said, was the, the uh, supporting actress, but she comes away with the Academy Award. There is divine providence, providence in here. I could use the whole the concept of the idea of the working out of coincidence, perhaps. I don't like the idea of coincidence. We would understand that God is always working. But it's interesting in this book, which I really like the book because of the real life issues that, that this book really has. There's no miracles. There's no prophet that comes upon the scene. There's no judge that's risen up. But it's the life of a family, and I can appreciate having the challenges of a family. And in that family, as we would see throughout, because there is the statement of God, but it's always kind of in a prayer standpoint. And maybe Boaz will say, he's going to describe God as one who is under whose wings Ruth has come to seek. But what happens? It is the wing of Boaz, which Ruth finds resolution uh, for her needs and the needs of, of uh, Naomi. Naomi will be in her bitterness and complains at the Lord while he ought to rectify uh, her situation. She has a sense of emptiness as she indicates to the ladies coming into Bethlehem. But it is Boaz who will say in chapter uh, twenty, chapter three, that he would uh, not send Ruth home uh, to Naomi empty. Naomi will say and invoke God as one to grant the girls to find security, and it's just her plan that gains the security for Ruth. When we come to the story of Ruth. I've been challenged a bit by some of the statements that Pastor Ending has been giving to us about investing in the lives of others. And what comes to my mind when I think about investing in lives of others is how do I do that? And what level of attitude and mindset must I have if I'm going to really be a person, I'm going to be a believer to invest my life in you or you and in me? When I look at the challenges that, that are there, we need to also appreciate that how God works is that it takes divine as well as human causality to transform Naomi's life from death to emptiness uh, from, and emptiness to life and, and fullness. And I think the same thing applies for us. Divine causality, God, God's working as well as our working together has an impact of transforming others in terms of their lives. 
But I think we're really challenged in our society, in our modern society here in the U.S. of A. We're challenged because we're extremely mobile. We are movable. We relocate. We're very, very private. I often say, you know, I like to enjoy looking at and assessing architecture. Because architecture has a lot to tell me a lot about, the, about our society. And in our architecture, when we go out and perhaps buy a home, our home design is for privacy. We want to be private. Uh, we were chuckling with, uh, my wife was share, sharing some things with me yesterday about, we don't want unannounced visitors. I mean, what, what do you mean showing up unannounced? Go home and make an appointment to see us. It wasn't like in the old days. I can remember as a kid, people would just stop by, and then and they, my, my parents would invite them in, and we would just have that fellowship. There wasn't a lot of cell phones and, and connecting back in those days. We just had the regular rotary dial phone, and if we really had a lot of money, we had a, you, you won't know this, we had a private line and not a party line. The party line, if you pick it up, it was cheapest. Somebody's on the line. Hey, get off this line. I'm trying to call. And the other person said, well, no, not until I'm finished. But we have that. We're very wealthy. Even the Bible speaks about the fact that money does solve a lot of problems. We've got crime. There is a fear and the cautious of others. But less like the Barner survey, which concluded about how people think in our society. People think and have value in only the things that bring, one, comfort, or two, is it convenient? Comfort and convenience. So this morning, because I really believe to invest in the life of others is a challenge, and it may be beyond, as I think about my own personal life, maybe beyond what I think I'm really ready to do or would be willing to do, what I want to do. So therefore, typically, instead of a charge of, of an imperative, a declaration of what we must do, I'm going to say, let's make it a prayer. Our prayer this morning is, O oh Lord, Help us make investing in the lives of others a priority. I need your help in order to do that. Now, again, doesn't mean we're making gigantic splashes. We're looking at a tiny splash, a teeny splash. Now, the book of Ruth, God uses to give us the ideal of priority for other people. This is the ideal. And this ideal, perhaps, we may not necessarily have to be at this level, but I wonder if I had, was given the occasion, would I do these things? In some cases, yes. I know I would, and I have. But would I do this for someone else? And so we have three examples of God's ideal of making a priority, having a priority to invest our lives or their lives in someone else. Now the first one is obviously the very largest one as far as I'm concerned in terms of our example of an ideal which has to be 
root. I think when we, if we would take a word that would describe, and very similar to that, that last hymn that uh, Pastor Sturzbach had, many great statements about really investing in others and forfeiting ourselves. So I see Ruth, she is willing to forfeit her opportunity in service for someone else. And in this particular case, it would be, it would be a Naomi. Now, I would think, and I would, I would look and say, if, I, if you and I were going to do this, it would be very similar to what she does. Because prior to leaving, she makes a covenant commitment to her relationship to Naomi. If we would go into our, our text, and we would, we would know if I could just peruse it, Naomi hears, in a very providential way, God's given Israel bread. Famine's over, things are turning back good. They all pack up together to go back to, to Israel. But she stops somewhere along the road, I assume. And in verse number 11, she says, Now look, look, turn back, uh, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. For... <clears throat> For uh, if I should say I, I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, you're not going to wait for them to grow old, uh, for, uh, wait for them. No, my daughters, it grieves me very much for your sake, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And in verse number 14, it says, Now, Orpha goes back. I think there's a contrast between what is acceptable acceptable decisions in relationship to someone else or a situation and very exceptional. Orpa, she makes what I said, okay, things are bad, where do I need to go? I need to go home. I, I always say, if this was my daughter, I say, I want you to come home. I, I'm, I want you to come home. But Ruth says she clung. Now that would be a physical, probably a physical cleave. I'm, I'm sticking with you. That word is the same word as cleave. In Genesis, very indicative of marriage. And the statement is like, is like the vows of a marriage. In verse number 16, Ruth says, Look, entreat me not to leave you. There's that glue there that's sticking together. Or to turn back from following after you. For whether you go, I will go. And whenever you lo wherever you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts you and me. That's a, that's a vow. That's a statement of marriage. And so this is foundational, is this, this covenant connection. As a church planner and going into the city... There really are two questions I really basically had to deal with. The first one, why another church? Philadelphia had over 500 Baptist churches, just Baptists alone. And here I am showing up in 1987. So I had to answer that question. But people are also mobile, having to move from one, perhaps one rental house to another rental house. And so in that mobility, I had to help people to say, okay, you're, you're way beyond... Our, our realm of ministry, you're, you're out of the neighborhood, etc., etc. When you go out, 
You're going to search for a church. This is, your first, this is what you're going to ask for first. You're going to ask for two documents. You're going to ask for a doctrinal statement, because that's going to tell you what that church believes. And you're going to ask for a constitution, because that's going to tell you how the church functions. If you can't get those two documents, find another church. I'm dealing with a guy now in Philadelphia, and I'm trying to help him as he's trying to revitalize his church. And so last week I asked him, let me have your doctrinal statement and constitution so I can see, that, so I can see what you're doing. He says, well, no, we're non-denominational. Well, I said, non-denominational? Oh, well, I'm not talking about organizational structure. I'm not talking about being a Southern Baptist or American Baptist. He says, no, I'm not. It didn't click unto me till later. He's non-denominational because he has no doctrine. He says, we're non-denominational, we have no doctrine. But there's a third document we've never had. And that is a covenant statement of how you and I will relate to one another. A covenant statement that says how you and I will relate to one another. Now we try to put one together in Philadelphia, uh, not in Philly, in Minnesota. And that was quite a challenge. We rewrote some of the old historical covenantal statements, and that was not a problem. Let me tell you what the problem was as we talked. Are we going to be actually committed to this, and to what extent? How many are willing to sign this document? Do we put, do you not understand what, what, Ruth is saying she put a judicial statement in her covenant statement to Naomi. If I leave you, if I depart, if I don't help you, am not supportive of you, may God do to me much more than whatever life befells you. So I think very foundational is what am I, how committed am I to you and how committed are you to me and to what extent is investing in the light of another have genuine meaning because we can say it but the issue can we implement it do we understand the ramifications of investing our life now we say oh no, look I can drive you up to the store <laughs> I, I can give you a buck for bread So with her opportunity, I think very foundational is the whole question of her statement of commitment. And so with the, with the opportunity, so she's got a heartfelt covenantal statement. And perhaps what we need to have in our mind is a heartfelt covenantal statement of what that means. But she also forfeited personal opportunities. He really did. First off, we could say, if we would turn to chapter 2, when she goes out to glean, and she happens to, again, providentially, through God's working, she comes and stumbles upon Boaz's field. And Boaz will, will come along and, and, and make the statement in verse number 11 of chapter 2. Because he's, he, he's really, her testimony is already known and throughout. Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law 
saying how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to a plea people whom you did not know before. She has left her father and mother. The place of the, in this era in terms of, of, of a widow, it was the opportunity as a young lady to return home. And again, as I put myself in this situation, if my daughter, husband, uh, died and she's in, a, in the area with, with her mother-in-law, I would ask her to come home. Even if it's a non-believer, I'd probably, I, would, I would probably say, I want you to come home because I'm going to take care of you. Home is always home. But she left that. And that was like opportunity. That was a, a, a place where there could be a greater potential. The idea in the word that where it speaks about in terms of rest is, is not necessarily the word shalom, but, but a, a rest that deals with, with um, uh, prosperity, prosperity uh, where things are satisfied. You've got a satisfying life. She forfeited that. She forfeited that. She forfeited a place where there could be recovery and opportunity. She forfeited that. Now, Orpha decided to go back. Will we criticize her? Probably not. Because what? That's normal. That's normal. I'm going to go where I'm... Hey, wait a minute. We're destitute here. I mean, we don't really know what's going to happen. Orpha says, hey, I'm going home. You're, you're, I'm convinced. I'm going home. And we'd probably have testimonies say, yeah, that, that's okay. Now, one criticism, obviously, of Naomi is the fact, because that's what she recommended, but she also recommended, go back to your gods. I mean, if she could extract out, strike, let's strike that last statement out. If we could strike out that last statement, I might buy in some of the other. But she said, go back to your gods. So we can't have that. But this whole idea of, of stability familiarity, security, she's willing to give up. You know, Barbara had another, another survey, and the respondents, felt, those that respond, felt how, realizing one's full potential as a human being is just as important as putting others before you. So my fulfillment, my ability to reach my full potential is on equal par as my responsibility to someone else. And in part, maybe that's, there is a, a, a part, a sense of that. Paul would say, you know what, let's not think upon our own interests. So there is an own interest that we have, but also the interests of another. So we're putting these two up in, uh, in maybe a, to some degree in tension, but certainly in parallel. 62% of Christian college students said, yeah, that's, that's true. 46% of seminary students said, yeah, that's true. But it's interesting, the public sector has only 44% said. It's other people. Identity was another area in terms of what was involved. She said, because uh, Boaz will say you left your people to come to a people whom you did not know. If you read this book, it should really come out always that Ruth is always identified as the Moabitess. Nobody called her just by her first name. Ruth the Moabitess. The author, and as he set the circumstances with each act, Ruth the Moabitess. The guy's in the field. Well, you know, Ruth the Moabitess. 
repeated over and over again, her identity is made known. How does identity play in our investing in other people? How does that play in investing in the life of other people? Do you know that when we look at the world, the world and the church have some similar ideologies? Friendships. Membership. Now, the world's ideology, or at least the grounding for that, is sameness, homogeneous groupings, opportunities that exist amongst one another. How do I profit in this relationship? What about the church? Biblical ideal is radically different than what is in the world. But the church has adopted part of the ideal that the world has. Homogeneous groupings. Two historical missionaries that frame in terms of missionary modeling as I study missions. That's my, I guess I can't say expertise, but that's, that's what I've majored in. William Carey, called the father of modern missions, wrote a book that dealt with how we go out and, and implement church planning in the mission field by using means to create conversion. But there's another individual that's much later, much more contemporary. I must admit, I can't recall his name. A gathering which sticks to my mind. But he said this, missions Church planning are most effective reaching homogeneous groupings, not heterogeneous groupings. How does he derive that? First off, obviously, there is a biblical theological ideal. We interpret the Bible, we look at what does God say about church planning or church relationship. Church body. What does God say? That is the ideal. But what has come on is what is called a practical theological, um, what did I typically call it? I'll call it an assumption. Observation. One is based upon the interpretation of Scripture and what God wants, the other is practical, theolo practical theology, which is imperfect. And he learned from observation as he observes that people will only congregate around people that are like themselves. And that's almost worldwide. Tribalism in Africa. We can look at caste system in India. We can look at it back in the days when I can remember as a young person and growing up, geographical segregation in the north, legal segregation in the south. All of that ends up with homogenous people groupings. So our challenge is, and I made the challenge, is the fact that am I willing to invest my life regardless of the people that God brings into my life? Where are they from? 
because she was willing to cross the street. She's gone into a land where she is definitely going to stand out. You ever been to a place where you stood out? I almost stand out everywhere I go. <laughs> I said, Roof the Moabitess, Emmanuel the black guy. <laughs> but there was a resolution. Where he, when we look at the tension between my advancements in life, my aspirations in life, and you. And that is, again, also in verse number 12 of chapter 2. Boaz will say in prayer, which ultimately he becomes the one to fulfill that, but he says something about what he saw in Ruth. He says, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wing you have come for refuge. In her mind, in her thinking, there her needs, I'll just do it contemporary, her aspirations, that which she felt would be important for her life, God would fulfill that. I'm going to put my life in God's hands in light of that which I aspire and desire to do. But right now, there's someone that needs me. And she had come to resolve that, you know what? Yahweh is going to take care of me. That's the call of the ministry. You know what the call of the ministry is? God's going to take care of me. There's not a whole lot of bank accounts at least we didn't have much. But God has always taken care of us. That I might serve his people. I wanted to reach high. As a matter of fact, I always thought that I reach high in, in lofty places. I mean, I've been in, in meetings with chief executive officers. I've flown in private jets. I've been picked up in limo. And I can remember being up at the RKO studio on the top of the top row, top level, meeting with, the, at that time, the president of RCA, me, meeting with the president of RCA. Then they had another meeting, another other, other chief executive officers coming in, AT&T, General Motors, and on. I wasn't in that meeting, but they allowed me to be in that meeting. I walk on over to the, to the window, and I looked over Manhattan. And I said to myself, self, I've arrived. But when it comes to ministry, God working in my heart, that was nothing. I'll let God take care of those things. And that's what, what obviously what, what uh, she does. Her interests, her needs were put there. All right, I need to quickly roll on two more. These are a little shorter runs. We'll look at now at Naomi. With Naomi, I believe she's willing to forfeit social customary rights in service to another. In verse number three, uh, one of chapter 3, Naomi now really, she is seeing God working. I mean, she came in, head bowed, tail down. I mean, don't call me Naomi Pleasant. Call me Mara. I am a bitter soul. But she see the providential working of God. And the things that were taking place and as God was working using Boaz to bless and to provide for Ruth and obviously Ruth and Naomi. Chapter 3, Naomi clicks. 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, My daughter, shall, not, shall I not seek security? There's our word. Security for you. That it may be well, prosperous, satisfying with you. Not me, but you. In the Old Testament, God had provisions for assisting Old Testament families. There were two. Actually, three. But there are two. One is the redemption of the lamb. In other words, preservation of ownership. You got in trouble, you could sell your land, but that title did not change. You got my land, but my name's still on the title. Because at the end of the, of the 50 years of Jubilee, hey, my land comes back. So land could never could be sold, but it could never be retained and kept in a permanent state. God always wanted that promised land to always be reigned under the title of the distributed family. The second was the redemption of the family in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The preservation of the family's name within the registry of the covenant uh, nation. And so they had a kinsman redeemer, Leverite marriage. Now Naomi has already told us in chapter 1, she felt she was old. One of the questions I have in our class that we started next week, what, is, what does it mean to be old? What is old to you? Somebody said, 10 years older than me. <laughs> A lot of distributions there, okay? Others are saying pain. That's one thing that, in my class, you come to my class, I see we're listening class. One of the air, our prayer areas is a prayer area of pain. We have pain. Okay, we've got pain. A lot of pain. Okay. So, she says that. She says, well, I, I don't know, but, but if I could get a husband and be childbearing. So, so maybe she's not childbearing, or maybe she is. We don't know these things. But somewhere, but still within that covenant nation, she had the right to receive support. She had a right to receive support. But she doesn't seek and ask it for herself. She asks it for Ruth. And I, again, I might be stretching this particular subsection uh, a little bit. But I see her forfeiting her rights in order for the support of another. She's willing to forfeit those. Now, we live in a nation today that rights are just all over the place. I got my civil rights. I want human rights. I want my woman's rights. I want my gender rights. Everything is rights, rights, rights. Our nation has formed the welfare system under the term entitlement. I'm entitled. And I think where we are, we've got nothing but a nation full of angry people because of their rights. Just because of their rights. Now, it's amazing. One of the things that I always do, again, one of my other, besides architecture, I like the way people drive because I get an idea of people by the way they drive. I'll be honest, the way they drive. Now here, you've got to be first. You'll notice everybody, you come up to the light, everybody moves over, and at the, at the light, they're gunning. Those are little 2.2, liters, up against my 5.0 motorcycle, always trying to beat me. Oh, you'll be like, only one corner. This, this lady, she just gunned it to beat me to the corner. Sometimes I get a little bit carnal and I'll say let me show you speed <laughs> you've got 
that caused no more than, than what I had as a Toro lawnmower. But everybody's got right. Now, in Philly, Philly is a very dense city because obviously it's a time in the founding of our country, so it's very tight. And that's why we call it a city of Beverly Shove because you've got this two million people tight. They're tight. And so what they do, they have one-way streets. In other words, every street, every other street is one way. So what I've learned is that if you're going to go down to a neighbor's, go down to a house, you inch out to see if somebody is double parked because you can't get by. And in Philly, if you go down that road and they're double parked, they may see you and they're on the, on the, uh, on the porch. They are not going to move. Now, you've got two options. You're going to have to wait till that person come down and move, or you're going to back out and go. You're going to back out and go. When we were there, somebody did the same. And now that everybody has got the road rage and anger, the guy goes down, he says he's honking, he's beeping. The guy came down and shot the guy. My right to block your way. My right to be first. She is willing to forfeit her rights in order that she, for the sake of another. I got saved in the late 70s. And as I indicated to you, we grew up in Cleveland, my wife and I. But we grew up, and if you go to our cities, they're based upon neighborhoods. And because they're based upon neighborhoods, those are geographical boundaries. You don't cross those boundaries. So I could tell you if you were from where you were from, who lives there? You live in Parma, those are Polish people. You live in Murray Hill, one of our homies here, those are Italians. You live uh, off St. Clair, Slovaks. You live in Glenville, where my wife lived. Uh, blacks, and then the moving of the Jews. You live in my neighborhood, it would be Italian. But in these geographical boundaries, we only want the churches of homogeneous groupings. Never ever did I go to a church that was heterogeneous, always homogeneous groupings. Blacks went their church, Whites went to their church. I got saved in the late 70s. My wife and we were in Minnesota up in Fourth Baptist. I tell this story. They've had it on the radio. Probably if they played it in the city, I'll be called an Uncle Tom and everything else that's negative. But I heard a radio station. I'm struggling to try to learn the Word of God. I'm reading it. And I happened to hit the button, and that church had a radio station. It's WCTS. And man, that, I mean, the preaching was solid. Oh, man, I loved it. I told my wife, hey, I heard this church. Let's go down. She said, well, you know what? Before you got saved, I, I went down there and I waited in the parking lot. And if I could just see one black person go into the church, we would have gone in. Had two small kids at that time. She didn't see any, so she came home. I think providential because then with my brother-in-law's church, they had, the, had an evangelistic service. She went to that, invited me there. I get saved. But when I hear that, I says to my family, because now my family is responsible, I'm responsible for truth as it relates to my family. I heard that station. I said, I'm going down, we're going down there. We're going to pack up. I, I don't, 
we go back. Well, she said, well, you know what? I was down there. There ain't no black folks there. I said, I don't care. I don't care. And if I, if we, fight, well, there'll be four of us, if we got to sit in the balcony, I'm going to sit in the balcony. Why? Truth. Truth. So they played that, that little story. But again, I, well, you mean to tell me you sit up? Yeah, I did. Again, keep in mind, this whole idea, biblical theological ideal, practical theology, which is imperfect. It needs to move towards that, but it's imperfect. And during that era, for a long period of time, it's always been imperfect. Yeah, I'm forfeiting my rights. Why? For truth and my family. So that was written in the book, and you'll see it on the ethnic shelf. They're going to send me all type of nastiness. And then lastly, and we want to go ahead and close out, just to ask real quickly, he's willing to forfeit maximum ownership and service for another. He's going to be willing to take on, take on the buying back. It looks like Naomi sold her property, or at least a piece of her property, to someone else already. So Boaz, even though the near kinsman redeemer says, no, I, I'm not going to do it because it's going to ruin my opportunities and my family. Boaz will say, I'll buy that land and then it goes back to Naomi and then I'll buy that again from her along with the land of Malon and Kilion and give me Ruth. <laughs> and I'll take Ruth. He's willing to do that. He did many other great things in terms of demonstrating hospitality. He acted above the letter of the law. How were poorer people basically to be able to provide there for themselves? Gleaning. Whatever fell during the planting or the harvest time, they would pick up the crumbs, the small pieces. But he tells us, look, you stay close to the guys and, uh, and my, my gals that are working for me. Then he whips us over to probably to the, to the, um, the supervisor and say, look, tell the guys, take a whole handful of grain or barley and drop it off for her. Above the law. So he got things that he could have said, hey, you can glean. That would have been acceptable. But exceptional, he gave abundantly. Exceptional, he gave that would have been part of his profits. That's exceptional. And so we got three individuals that God has given to us of the ideal investment in the making the, in the life of others. And I go back, and I go back still with the whole prayer request because I go back and say, some of this I have done and was willing to do. But Lord, help me to do all the others. So the question has to be, in closing out, are you willing to adopt God's ideal for prioritizing others? If the occasion arises, now there has to be, in my mind, perhaps three, maybe more thoughts. I have to set up in my mind, define before the Lord my purpose statement for life. How do I purpose my life? It helps me to check my self-interest. I said, Lord, I have lived 34 years for me. If I get 34 years, I don't care what 
I'm going to live for you. I don't care what, I'm going to live for you. And at times, even though we got thought finances were very thin, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go off and try to get another job. God won, God didn't allow it. But I didn't turn around from that, that statement. I didn't turn from that statement. Now, people move, you know, we move and go because we're so mobile. But what is our, what is our covenant commitment to one another? When we move, do we ever think about, who am I leaving? I was a big mover. Never had a job longer than three years. Any job, and I probably had ten different levels of jobs. Moving. Moving my family all over the country. Why? Trying to get up here. You must be willing to leave personal interests under the will of God. Expecting God. God's going to be there. God's going to be there. Because he's working in tandem with you. And we've got to get out of this convenience thing. We must not make convenience a priority. Whether or not you come to, to an aid of another and that you ultimately be the assistant, we work to try to help that individual. One of the reasons why, I, I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I, I strong, very seldom have I asked anybody, a lot, sometimes I do, but sometimes in a more serious way I, I don't, because of convenience. People don't want to respond if it's inconvenient. And that kind of makes me frustrated. So I said, I'll just do it myself. That can't be us as believers. That's practical theology imperfect. That's practical theology that's imperfect. We continue to pursue to live according to the measure and the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. His interest was for us, the writer Philippians, Paul said, using that hymn. Becoming what he was not, setting aside what he had, for what? Someone else, you and me. Perhaps there's someone this morning, I would like to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is revelatory, that is life-changing that is a change of values. That's the ideal of life. That's God's working, God's provision for you. And if you don't know him, I'd like to pray for you in our closing prayer. Let's bow our heads.